In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue uh, studying the history of the Coptic Church. Last time um, we spoke about the Holy Family um, when they left Israel and they came and they fled to Egypt um, and all of the places that they visited and how a lot of those places um, became churches and monasteries and other holy sites and also how all of the every time the Holy Family traveled to a specific place in Egypt all of the pagan temples would collapse and fall um, and then we spoke about the uh, the the preaching of Saint Mark when he came to Egypt um, and he uh, introduced Christianity um, to the Egyptians so I'm going to continue this time and speak about a few more of the achievements of Saint Mark in Egypt and then also start speaking about a very important milestone um, in, in Egypt, which is the Theological School of Alexandria. Um, so St. Mark's achievements, he preached in Egypt and the Pentapolis. The Pentapolis is like five cities in northern Africa, uh, next to Judea, Antioch, Cyprus, Asia Minor, and Italy. He ordained bishops, priests, and deacons. Um, he also wrote the oldest gospel. So the, the gospel of St. Mark is actually the first gospel um, to be written. Um, and he wrote... Uh, one of the liturgies that we use. Do you know which liturgy that we use uh, that was written by St. Mark? Not Basil. That was written by St. Basil. St. Cyril liturgy, right? So St. Cyril, he took the liturgy of St. Mark and he kind of organized it and made some modifications to it, but the original liturgy uh, of St. Cyril was written actually by St. Mark. So this was very, very, very early. You know, so when you look at the liturgy that we pray today, the structure of the liturgy, like the way that we pray, this is actually something that existed from the first century, right? Um, so that's very, very, um, very interesting. He also established the Catechetical School of Alexandria to defend Christianity against its secular philosophical school. So Egypt, again, was very well known for, uh, for its education, for its philosophy. There was a lot of very... Um, intelligent philosophers and people that were in Egypt, uh, and and they had a, a school, uh, like a, a secular philosoph philosophy school, um, that would attract many many people, and and many people from all over the world. They would come and study in Alexandria, and there was a very famous library that had manuscripts and documents from all over the world that were very important, and so it was like a center of learning. So when Saint Mark came to Egypt, he established his own. Uh, theological school to uh, attract those who were very, very educated and very interested in philosophy to attract them to the Christian teachings. Um, so he, he established that. Some of the early successors of St. Mark, um, Ananias, and nine other prelates who succeeded him, the three priests ordained by St. Mark were elevated to be the three successors after Anianus. So St. Mark, he would appoint uh, bishops, and those bishops that he appointed eventually became the successors, the successive popes, patriarchs that came after St. Mark. Justice, who was appointed the dean of the School of Alexandria by St. Mark, became the sixth pope. Many of those who became patriarchs were actually deans of the School of Alexandria. So they would become deans of the school, and then it would eventually be chosen to be patriarchs, um, and they taught the people uh, with diligence. Because of the peaceful times they enjoyed, they succeeded in increasing the number of the faithful greatly. Heraclas, who was the 13th pope of Alexandria, was the first to carry the title pope in the whole Christian world, even before Rome, 
uh, was the first bishop of Rome to be called Pope. So in, uh, Siricius was the first bishop of Rome to be called Pope. So, um, so the term Pope actually uh, originated uh, among the, the Church of Alexandria or the, the Coptic Church. Um, the first papal residence was Anianus' house, who was the, the first patriarch appointed after St. Mark. Then the Church of St. Mark, where St. Mark was buried, became the papal residence. Um, Alexandria remained the center of the sea for many centuries, except during persecutions, and the Pope of Alexandria was called the judge of the universe. So nowadays, the Sea of Alexandria, the center the p where the cathedral um, of the, the Pope, like the papal residence is, is actually in Cairo. But um, at, the, at the time, it was uh, in Alexandria, and that's why the Coptic Church is called the Church of Alexandria. That was the, s the, the center of the Sea of, um, of St. Mark at that time. The Coptic Orthodox Church is an apostolic church, um, also known as the Church of Alexandria or the See of St. Mark. The term see is like a technical wor word, and it means like the throne or the seat. So the See of St. Mark or the See of Alexandria is the authority of the Church of Alexandria. Okay, So there were, f there were five sees that existed um, in the early church. Okay, um, There were uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. Okay, these were the original four, and then later on in the fourth century, there was added to them Constantinople. So these five sees, or before that, the four sees, they were all one church. They all had the same faith. These are not like different denominations of the church. It was all one, but they were different centers of of Christianity around the world. And each one of these areas had their own patriarch, but they were all in communion together with with one another. Um, so we said St. Mark is considered the first pope of Alexandria, and his successors have continued in an unbroken line since his martyrdom until the present day. So when we say that the Coptic Church, as well as all the other Orthodox churches, are apostolic churches, one of the, one of the things that that means is that every clergy can trace their ordination all the way back to St. Mark. St. Mark was chosen as an apostle by Christ. St. Mark appointed the first uh, bishops and patriarchs and those bishops and patriarchs appointed all the subsequent bishops and patriarchs and those patriarchs and bishops are the ones who ordained all of the priests so in the end every clergy every priest can trace themselves all the way back to christ through an unbroken line of succession of priesthood um, all the way throughout history so in that sense it is it apostolic because the priesthood traces itself back to the apostles and ultimately to christ some of the famous characters that existed at the time, so uh, one was Pope Demetrius, who was the 12th Pope of Alexandria. He was an illiterate vine dresser, and actually, uh, as a vine dresser, he was, he was working in the field, and he saw that there was um, uh, uh, grapes that had grown out of season, that it was not the season for them. So he decided that he wanted to go and to give it as a gift to the existing Pope. At the same time, the existing pope had already seen in a vision that someone was going to come and deliver this to him. So when, when, pope, when Demetrius, who became Pope Demetrius, when he went and he visited the pope and he gave, him, uh, he gave this, these grapes to him, he was surprised to find out that actually he was going to become the next pope. The, the vine dresser who brought the grapes, he was going to become the next pope. But he was um, illiterate and he did not... He didn't, you know, he, he didn't have any education. So he spent so much time learning and being educated so that he could fulfill, fulfill this role of being pope. 
Um, he kept his virginity for 48 years, even though he was married. And at the time, after he became the patriarch, Pope Demetrius, there were people who felt like offended at the idea that he was married and he could be pope at the same time because the popes were celibate. So um, even though he was, you know, he, he remained in virginity, he remained in celibacy, even though he was married. So one day, um, God told him to reveal this uh, mystery, this hidden secret, because nobody knew about this, to the people, because so that they would not be offended by this. And so he put like fire on himself and fire on his wife, and neither of them were burned. And so he said this, he says, the person who is not burned by lust will not be burned by fire. And all the people saw and realized that this was like God, this miracle was manifesting the fact that Pope Demetrius and his wife were actually living in celibacy, even though they were married and God revealed this. Um, this man, who started out as illiterate, he is actually, and under him, was the, he was the one who developed the system by which we calculate the, the, days of, the dates of Easter every single year that has been used by the Coptic Church up until today. Um, he devised a method called the E-Pact for calculating the date of Easter to, to always follow the Passover, which was approved by the Holy Synod and later by the First Ecumenical Council of Nicaea. So the Coptic Church is the one who actually developed how the churches calculate when Easter is. This calculation is still used today, and the calculation had to do with calculating the, um, the Beschol moon, the Beschol new moon, when that would happen every year, which is essentially the date that the Jews uh, uh, celebrated the Passover. Okay, Nowadays, because of changes to their calendar, they don't celebrate the Passover on the same day. But throughout history, the Jews would celebrate the Passover on a specific day. That's what this calculated. And then we, as the Christian church, in order not to uh, make it seem like we are celebrating with the Jews, we would always celebrate the week after them. So we would calculate when they celebrate, and then we would say, okay, now it is the week after. This calculation, the calculation that he, um, that he developed is actually the same calculation that's found in Coptic Reader that determines the date of the Feast of the Resurrection every single year. This same calendar was followed actually by all the churches in the world um, until Pope Gregory, who was a Catholic Pope, became Pope and in 1582, he developed a new calendar system, which is called the Gregorian calendar, and, and that's the calendar that now most of the world uses. So that's why you will find that there is a discrepancy between the date that we, for instance, celebrate Christmas and the date that the, the rest of the world celebrates Christmas because we didn't transition to the Gro Gro Gregorian calendar. So in, in the Gregorian calendar, Christmas is on December 25th, okay, and the um, in, the, in the calendar that we use, which was the original calendar developed, we celebrate on December 25th, but of the Julian calendar, not of the Gregorian. So we celebrate December 25th Julian, they ce celebrate December 25th Gregorian, and so there is, a, there is a discrepancy between the two, and so ours ends up landing on January 7th in the Gregorian calendar. That's why in the Orthodox Church, or the Coptic Church specifically, we celebrate um, the Nativity, on January 7th and not December 25th. It is December 25th, but it's December 25th of the Julian calendar. Um, and before the calendar was updated by Pope Gregory, um, everyone was celebrating it at the same time. There were persecutions 
by the emperor, one of the main sources of persecution that happened throughout history in the Coptic church, there was actually many sources. One of the sources of persecution happened from the Romans. Um, so the Roman emperor Severus um, was persecuting the Christians and many people were martyred. And during these persecutions, um, a Roman prefect marched with his troops into the church of St. Mark and they robbed it of all of the holy vessels that were there. He seized the pope, he sent him into exile where he remained under, uh, under uh, exile until the persecutions had stopped. And on his return, he appointed a man by the name of Origen, the dean of the school of Alexandria. This man, Origen, is very important. Um, we quote him often. He has many, many writings. He was a very uh, learned, intelligent man, very, very strong theologian. Um, and um, uh, Pope Demetrius, uh, he sent Origen on a mission uh, for like a missionary work. And on his return, Origen was returned, uh, on his return, Origen was ordained uh, by both Alexander, Bishop of Jerusalem, and Theostite, Bishop of Caesarea, without asking the permission of Pope Demetrius. Origen became a very controversial figure. Even though he contributed much to Christian understanding and learning and writing and so on, um, but there was, there was a, a few main things that was an issue with him, which is why we don't call him a saint in the church, we call him a scholar. Um, so number one is he accepted to be ordained as a bishop outside of his own, uh, outside of his own diocese, so to speak. Right, his his the the person kind of his his, his bishop over him was um uh, uh was was Pope Demetrius or the Pope over him, but Origen when he traveled to another place he accepted to be ordained away from his Pope, so the Pope was was not happy with him for that. Um, also he um he he out of kind of his zeal and his desire for drawing closer to God he castrated himself. Um, which was also wrong for him to harm his own body in this way. Um, the third thing, uh, which is maybe the thing that we hear about the most when it comes to origin, is he had um, a lot of uh, erroneous uh, teachings, okay, including things like universal salvation, where everyone is saved, even the salvation of the devil, believing that the devil himself would be saved. Um, and so there was a questions about why is it that he is teaching this? Origen wrote many, many, many thousands of books, okay? And uh, out of all of the books that he wrote, there was only one book that had all of these heretical teachings in that book. And the way that Origen would, um, would dictate the books, because he wouldn't write the books with his own hand, he had scribes. And those scribes would write what he says, so he would dictate to them. And he was so, like, advanced, what he would do is, he, let's, he could write, like, five books at the same time. So he'd have, like, five scribes, and he would dictate to one, like a sentence to write. Then he would go to the second one, dictate a sentence, third, fourth, fifth, and then go back to the first one again. So he was able to keep all of this in his mind, dictating and doing so. So some people say that it's possible that one of those scribes that was writing for him had something against him and maybe was writing false things in that book that actually wasn't coming from origin. Um, it's a possibility. Again, he had, out of all of the many, many, many books he wrote, there was only one book, it's called On First Principles, that had all of the heretical stuff in it, only that one. So, so there's a big question as to whether that actually was authored by him or not. Because of all of those things, because he accepted to be ordained outside his diocese, Pope Demetrius ex excommunicated him because he was ordained as a priest. I think, yeah, it's a mistake here when it says was ordained bishop. It should say ordained priest, I believe. 
While he was unworthy by these bishops without the agreement of Pope Alexandria, the Pope of Alexandria, and because of some theological heresies in his writings, he used to know the hidden sins and rebuke those who committed them for repentance. So God gave him this gift of knowing like the sins of others. He lived to be 105 years old and was carried to teach his children at church. And he departed after leading the church for 42 years, leaving 20 bishops in Egypt. So this is speaking about Pope Demetrius. Um, he knew the hidden sins um, and he served the church as Pope for 42 years. Yes. So I believe that a lot of the excommunication and things that happened to him happened to him actually later on. So it wasn't at the time. And actually, I, I believe that he, his excommunication might have happened even after he died, if I, if I recall correctly. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about that. Um, Pope Heraclas, he is the, the successor of, uh, of Pope Demetrius. He was born in Alexandria from pagan parents. And later, they all ended up converting to Christianity. And the most famous student and helper of origin, he was, Her Heraclas, was the student of origin. And he became his successor as the next dean of the School of Alexandria. Pope Demetrius had ordained him a priest and then Hegumen because of his capability for teaching, giving him permission to preach in the cathedral. And he led many pagans to the faith um, and again was chosen to be the successor of Pope Demetrius. He spent his first few years teaching his people, visited all the people all, all over Egypt during times of persecution, and he ordained bishops. Um, and because of the love of his people, they called him Pope. Thus, like we said, he was the first one to carry the title in the whole Christian world, even um, before Rome. Through his efforts, he succeeded in restoring back many of those who denied their faith, Pope Heraclas departed after 16 years of striving in his ministry. These are like some important names that you might hear, just so you have some kind of sense of who they are. Pope Dionysus, he is the, the subsequent pope. He was also born in Alexandria in 190 AD. They were pagans, um, and he worshipped, I should say, stars. He worshipped stars, and he was a clever physician, um, and he had a love for reading, um, and that helped him to convert to Christianity. He ended up studying at the School of Alexandria as a student under Origen, and then he ended up becoming the dean of the school after Pope Heraclas for 16 years and became one of the brightest students. Pope Demetrius ordained him a deacon and Pope Heraclas ordained him a priest. He became patriarch in 247 AD and his papacy was characterized by persecution. Dionysus was, was well versed in philosophy, theology, and even in the heretical writings because he was originally a pagan, so he had a good background and that's what made him very uh, equipped to be able to convert pagans because he, he used to be pagan, he understood. Um, he sent an epistle to Gaius, the new emperor, describing the tortures that had been inflicted on the cops by his father, the late emperor Decius, and the epistle had a soothing effect on Gaius, so he declared that he would leave the Christians in peace. This was co a constant source of... Um, a constant source of problems in the church is foreign leaders, whether it be from the Roman Empire or later from the Islamic Empire, and how when one leader, you know, died or, or, or departed for whatever reason, and a new leader came in place of him, that each leader would have a different attitude toward the church. So some of them were, um, were sympathetic with the church, they would leave them alone, um, but more often than not, they were not. More often than not, they were very brutal um, when it came to the Christians, um, in Egypt. He ordained priests and deacons and consecrated several new churches in his visits. He held a three-day council in Arsinoe, which is Ancina, I believe, um, with both clergy and lay people, 
confronting Bishop Nepos regarding his millenarian controversy. So the millenarian controversy is, this is a, a view of um, the, the, the second coming. So some people believe, um, and even today, um, many in the Protestant tradition will believe that the, that the period of the millennia that is mentioned in the book of Revelation as being the thousand years of, of peace, where Christ reigns as being a literal 1,000 years on earth when the Lord Christ is reigning as king. Um, we, we do not believe that this is literally a 1,000 years. We believe that the 1,000 years is a symbolic number that represents the reign of Christ after his resurrection and, and the period of grace that we are living in now as being a symbolic 1,000 years and not a literal 1,000 years that will happen in the future. And so this was a controversy that happened in the early church, and it was decided that this view was not, was not correct, this view of literally 1,000 years. And so that was one of the things that was um, contested here by Pope Dionysus. On his return to Arsenault, Abba Dionysus wrote an epistle entitled The Divine Promises and explained the divine promises mentioned in the book of Revelation. Having succeeded in establishing unity and peace among his people, he directed his energies further to the sister churches. He was ultimately exiled in the desert and during the persecution of Valerian, which is another emperor for three and a half years. Once in exile, he resumed his intellectual and spiritual activities, writing, teaching, and preaching. The persecution ceased with the death of Valerian, and he protected the universal church from many heresies and was called the teacher of the universal church by St. Athanasius. He died after 17 years of his papacy, and unfortunately, most of his writings um, were lost, and we do not have them today. Theological School of Alexandria. So as I mentioned, the establishment of the school was a very important step in the preaching of Christianity, and, and very similar to the way that St. Paul, whenever he was preaching to the Greeks in Athens, and he, had, he spoke to them and approached them in a very philosophical, logical, apologetic way, because the, the audience he was speaking to, the people, they were very intelligent, very philosophical. So here also St. Mark, when he saw how in Egypt the people were um, very intelligent philosophers, he established the school to be a, a way of attracting them to Christian education from the secular and pagan education that they already had, okay? So there was the secular school that was already established, okay? So this is the secular school. It was founded by Ptolemy Soter in 323 AD. Ptolemy is like the king of Egypt, okay? So um, the secular school was established before Christ, who had been there for a long time. His successor, Ptolemy Philadelphus, attracted the Greek philosophers to it at 288 BC, and during his era, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was accomplished according to his decree by the 70 Jewish rabbis. This is a very, very important event that happened in history. Very, very important. Ptolemy Philadelphus, who was the king of Egypt at the time, in 288 BC, he saw that the Hebrew scriptures who were, that were written were beneficial not only to the Hebrews, but were beneficial to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world were Greek-speaking. So he commissioned these 70 Jewish rabbis in order to translate the Jewish scriptures from, from Hebrew to Greek so that they could be read by the rest of the world. Okay, And so this is what happened. And this uh, translation came to be known as the Septuagint translation. So you have the original Hebrew and you have the translation into Greek. What happened over time 
was that the original Hebrew documents became um, corrupted in the sense that they could not be correctly understood and translated because the, the, the way that they were written could only be understood with knowledge of the oral tradition that had been passed down from generation to generation that explained how to read them. It was not simple reading, like the way that we have books. Imagine you have this document that has just a bunch of text, and it doesn't have spaces between the words, and it doesn't have vowels, okay? So it's just a bunch of letters. And it's difficult, if you have never seen this before, and you don't know how to read it, it's difficult to understand it and interpret it. So for a period of time, now keep in mind also that in the year 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, okay? So, so the Jewish culture was decimated, okay? And everything that was Jewish, okay, became, became you know, like, like it was destroyed. So for a long, long, long period of time, even up until the 10th century AD, really nobody was reading the Hebrew scriptures. Nobody, no, nobody could read it. There was a group then in, in, of Jews called the Masoretes. The Masoretes, in the, around the 9th or 10th century AD, they decided they wanted to revive the Jewish uh, Hebrew scripture again. So they l studied, they did a lot of research, and they studied, and they figured out how to reconstruct the Hebrew scripture, the original Hebrew scripture that was written, and a format that would be more accessible for people to read in the modern era, modern meaning a thousand years ago, okay? Um, and so that's what they did. The problem is that they, did, they were operating kind of in the dark, in a lot of ways, because they didn't have the benefit of that tra oral tradition that had been passed down, and they made you know they, they had to make a lot of interpretation. Um, also, um, being Jews, who obviously didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, whenever there are prophecies or things that point to um, Christ, they just had a natural bias that you know that they believe that this man is not the Messiah. This man is not. So what ended up becoming what, what is now called the Masoretic text, because it was written by the Masoretes, this became the foundation of all the subsequent English translations of the Bible. The New King James Version that we read, this is an English translation of the Masoretic text. The New International Version, the Revised Standard Version, the n n whatever you want version that's in English, Okay, all these common versions that we hear about, these are all translations of what? The Masoretic text, which is what? A reconstruction of the original Hebrew that included a lot of interpretation by these group of Jews called the Masoretes. Okay, so in the church, what do we believe as being the most accurate translation of the Old Testament? The most accurate translation is not this Masoretic text. Even though it's in Hebrew, it's not the original. It's an interpretation of the original. The, the, the more accurate and the one that actually came before the Masoretic text is this, the Septuagint. The Greek translation of the original Hebrew, which was translated by rabbis, which was translated by people that understood the oral tradition, which was, which was, which was written before the time of Christ so that there was no bias in, in it, at all, it was just a translation as it is. And when you read, you know, in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, he quotes the Old Testament. When you read in, let's say, the New King James Version, when you read 
because that's based on Masoretic. When you read the New King James Version and you read a quotation where the Lord is directly quoting the Old Testament, and then you go to the New King James Version Old Testament and read the exact same thing, you'll find that there's some variations in it. I mean, keep in mind, these variations are not like to the point where it's like has completely different meaning or that somehow the message of salvation or the faith is different, but there are variations. But when you go to the Septuagint text, you find that it, it, the quotation is, is accurate, right? Which means that the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever he quotes the Old Testament, his quote matches the Septuagint translation more than it matches the Masoretic translation, okay? So it says something. It says that the Masoretic translation is not perfect, okay? There are, there are, there are discrepancies in it. Again, I don't want people to feel that, okay, that means that we can't read it because of discrepancies that are in it. No, that's actually the church, the, 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 the version that we use in the church most, most commonly. But if you ask what is the most accurate version, it's the Septuagint translation. The reason that never really became um, commonly used in the Orthodox Church, at least the Coptic Church, is simply for practical reasons. Um, for the longest time, there weren't good English translations of the Septuagint um, because most of the Bibles that we use in the church are Protestant versions, and all the Protestant Bibles were, were translated from the Masoretic text. So it's for, for those practical reasons, this is what we end up. And same thing in Egypt. The most common Arabic version of the Bible in Egypt is called the SVD. It's the Van Dyke version. That is also a version that was translated from the Masoretic text into Arabic. So whether you are in Egypt or whether you're here in the West, most likely the, the version of the Bible that you are reading is Masoretic. If you want to go to something that is more accurate, you go to the Septuagint. Okay, which there are English versions of the Septuagint. The most famous one that was done years ago um, in English is called the Orthodox Study Bible. The Orthodox Study Bible, the Old Testament, is the Septuagint version. The New Testament is the New King James Version. Because remember, Septuagint has nothing to do with the New Testament. The Septuagint is talking about Old Testament only. But if you try to read the Septuagint, you'll find that Things are a little different. The verse numberings aren't necessarily the same. Even the names of the books are different. So, for instance, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, those are kind of in chronological order in the New King James. And the Septuagint, those aren't called 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. They're called 1 Kingdoms, 2 Kingdoms, 3 Kingdoms, 4 Kingdoms. Okay. In addition to those books, there are other books that were completely removed. Okay. They were removed by the Masoretes. So they are books that were originally written in Hebrew. Or, or, sorry, they were originally considered canonical scripture in the Old Testament. But the Masoretes in the 9th or 10th century AD decided, uh, decided that to remove them. These books were also translated into the Septuagint. So, so B.C. time, these Hebrew prophets, they wrote books okay in 288 bc or in like the third century bc these books were translated into greek a thousand years later the masoretic jews chose to remove some of these books why did they remove them they either because they were written in other languages other than hebrew and they believed that hebrew was the language like the 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 only language that we should accept for for writing the scripture or there were other reasons why they thought that they shouldn't be included okay so we as Orthodox, we accept those books. 
we don't believe those books should have been removed. So when you open a Protestant Bible, you will not find those books. But when you open an Orthodox Bible, you will find those books. So for instance, in Coptic Reader, we took those books and we added them. So those are not um, the New King James Version, because there doesn't exist a New King James Version of those books. Those are directly from the Septuagint. These include books like the First Maccabees, Second Maccabees, Baruch, Tobit, um, and others. Okay, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Sirach. These are all books that were origin written originally at the time. They were authentic. They were canonical. They were accepted as inspired by God and Scripture. But in the 10th century AD, they were removed Okay, by the Masoretes. And so all subsequent English translations have them removed. We do not remove them. We keep them and we read them. Um, the Ptolemy, who was the king of Egypt, he was very eager for the Hellenic knowledge, belie believing in his ability to convert the Egyptian culture into Greek. So part of doing this is he wanted to influence the Hebrew culture, the Jews, and to make them to accept Greek culture. Okay, And actually this period of time, um, which is we call it the intertestamental period, essentially it's between the time of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and the 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 gospels which is the beginning of the new testament this period where there are no uh where there are no books written in the protestant tradition in the protestant bible there are books that are which are we are the maccabees first and second maccabees that speak about the attempts of the greek empire to influence the jewish empire and to essentially convert them to the greek culture okay and one of the steps that was taken to do this was to do this septuagint um, translation. So I think we're out of time. Any questions before we conclude? Yes. It's called what? Good News? Good News Bible? Yes, so so the Catholic Church, as the Orthodox Church, we accept these other books. We call them the deuterocanonical books. So these books that were removed by the Masoretes, we call them deuterocanonical. The Protestant Church calls them apocryphal. Apocryphal meaning they are like corrupted, they are not accepted, they are not authentic, they are not canonical. We don't call them apocryphal, we call them deuterocanonical. So the Catholic Church also accepts the deuterocanonical books. The list of books that is accepted between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church are not identical. Okay, so some churches believe that, so for instance, I believe the Catholic Church, perhaps they also accept other books like 3rd and 4th Maccabees, which we do not consider to be authentic, um, and there are others as well. So the, the, the translation, so, so remember, the Septuagint is Greek, okay? But we don't read Greek, most of us, so effort was put to translate from the Greek into other languages like English. So just as there are many versions of the Bible that are translations from the Masoretic text into English, just like the ones I mentioned, like New King James, New International Version, Revised Standard Version, New Revised Standard Version, all these others, right? There's many, many, many. There's also different translations from the Greek Septuagint to English, okay? So you will find that there are different ones. And so I, I, I can't say that I'm very familiar with all of them, but I would say 
that the translations that are coming, like say, like say from the Catholic Church, even though it's not going to be identical to maybe what we use or whatnot, but I would think for the most part they are similar. Are you talking about the New New Testament or Old Testament? So the New Testament, there's no Septuagint for that. The New Testament is just, we, take, we pick a version that, because the New Testament was written in Greek, we pick a version that we feel is the most accurate when it comes to, con to translation from Greek, and the church studied which version, and we kind of agreed that the closest version to the Greek and English would be the New King James. So when it comes to the New Testament, we use New King James. When it comes to the Old Testament, you have a lot of options, right? You can use a translation that originated from the Masoretic text, which is like New King James or all of the Protestant versions, or you can use something that came from the Septuagint version, and even that, there are different options, right? Like, for instance, the version of the Septuagint that was included in Coptic Reader, how did we choose it? It's kind of silly, actually. Because the, the, the Arabic version of the Septuagint, the Arabic translation of the Septuagint that we had, had a certain verse numbering, okay? Different versions of the, uh, of the English translation of, of the Septuagint had various verse numberings. So we found one that matched the verse numberings of the Arabic, and that's what we used. I mean, it's sad to say... <laughs> we, we didn't try to find, okay, what is the most accurate one? We said if it matches the verse numbering, and it turned out to be a Catholic version. It's called the Catholic Public Domain Version. There's a website called sacredbible.org, which has, has this version on it. So the version of the Septuagint that is in Coptic Reader comes from the Catholic Public Domain Version. So it's a Catholic version that has the verse numbering matching. The Catholic Church has other Septuagint translations um, as well that have different verse numbering. But that's the one that we have. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day and for every opportunity you give us to learn about you and to study your word and to understand the church, O Lord, and how it came to be and how we came to be where we are today. We ask, O oh Lord, that you fill us with all wisdom and knowledge, and you help us, O oh God, to, con to be confirmed in our faith, to grow, to grow closer to you, and to remember you, O oh Lord, and to experience you in every moment of our lives. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord.